Dear ones, would you please turn with me your copy of God's Word to Psalm 125. This evening we will look at Psalm 125 in its entirety. Yes, all five verses. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word. We pray, O Lord, that you would, by your spirit, illumine the text of scripture, that we might see Christ clearly with the eyes of faith. We pray this in Christ's mighty name. Amen. Please be seated. The Great Wall of China stands as one of the most remarkable human achievements in the world. This is a vast structure in northern China measuring approximately 4,500 miles. And some of its parts, um, some think, are nearly 3,000 years old. Archaeologists and historians believe that the Great Wall of China was built not only or even primarily as a border marking, But instead, it was built uh, to serve a defensive purpose. This great wall, of course, protected the Chinese people from foreign invaders, from nomadic tribes in the north who sought to fight, rob, or enslave them. While the great wall now stands as an important historical artifact, its builders put it up for very practical reasons, and it worked well as a defensive artifact protection. Outside the Great Wall, especially when the Mongolian tribes were roaming the area, chaos and war reigned. But inside the wall, there was relative peace and safety, security for those who lived there. Psalm 125 presents God himself as a great wall, the strong fortress who holds his people fast who surrounds them and protects them, who preserves them. In this psalm, you and I see that God is our solid rock, the foundation of our faith, the one to whom we run for refuge and safety. Dear Christian, when all around you in this world is shaky and unstable, know that God himself is your strength. Psalm 125 is one of the songs of ascents, It's generally believed that this group of psalms, the psalms from 120 to 134, were sung by Israelites as they made their way into Jerusalem. In the Old Testament law, the people of Israel were commanded to travel from their homes to Jerusalem for three separate feasts every year. There's the Passover and the Pentecost and then the Day of Atonement. And they would gather together with the rest of God's people and worship God in the temple. 
while they were making their long journey into the city, the people of God would sing these pilgrim psalms. Jerusalem, as we'll see um, in this psalm, is built on a hill. And so no matter what direction you travel from, you always have to go up to Jerusalem. And so these songs were sung as the people were ascending Jerusalem, making their way to the holy city. In his commentary on the Psalms, James Montgomery Boyce, uh, one time pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, says this about the songs of ascents. He says, quote, It has been said that these psalms do not reflect the high level of faith and spirituality found in other psalms. He quotes someone else who said that they are marked by a kind of plaintive note, by a mild sadness. Boyce goes on. If so, it is appropriate for those who were on their way to God's city but had not reached it yet. It is this note of sadness that makes these songs so descriptive of the Christian's similarly hard and upward pilgrimage through this dark world toward heaven, end quote. While God promises to protect his people, to provide for them, Psalm 125 reminds you and me that there is still wickedness in this world. And the attacks of the wicked can still affect God's covenant people. They come from within and from without. The Lord never promises, though, that the journey will be easy. But he does promise that all throughout the journey, he will abide with you to care for and comfort you, to be your God, and to, live, and to deliver you in the end. The promises of God that the psalmist mentions throughout this psalm are given to the collected people of God, that is, to the true Israel of God, the church. But here, as is often the case in Scripture, those corporate promises of God are also applied to the individual believer. So although this psalm is filled with promises that are made to the church, to Israel in the Old Testament, to the church in the New Testament, in this psalm, God also promises to protect and safeguard each individual Christian. In Psalm 125, then, while God is speaking to the church, while the, the psalm is directed toward the corporate people of God, he's also speaking directly to you dear believer. And here, God speaks a word of comfort and peace, which I pray would be a, a balm for your soul. So we're going to look at this psalm and take it in three parts or three different points. First, we'll look at verses 1 and 2, and we, we will see that the Lord protects his people. And then in verse 3, we see that wickedness remains. So 1 and 2, the Lord protects his people. In verse 3, Wickedness remains. And in verses 4 and 5, the Lord gives his people peace. So first, we look at verses 1 and 2. The Lord protects his people. These verses say, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. The faith of believers, according to Psalm 125, is like Mount Zion, the mountain upon which God's people built the capital city of Israel, Jerusalem. And it was in that city that they placed the temple of the Lord, all according to the Lord's 
direction. This mountain, Mount Zion, represents the faithful and those who trust in the Lord, who believe in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, cannot be moved. This is the promise that we have here in this psalm, that those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. The 17th century Dutch theologian and pastor uh, Petrus van Maastricht wrote a book, a very long work, a multi-volume work called Theoretical Practical Theology. But in it, he discusses faith and defines faith. And here is his definition of saving faith. He says, quote, Saving faith is nothing other than the act of the whole rational soul by which it receives God as the highest end and Christ as the one and only mediator for this purpose, that we may be united with him and being thus united, obtain communion with all his benefits. The faith of believers is pointed toward God as its highest end and Christ as the only mediator between God and man. And the purpose of faith is so that we would be united to him. And so what we, what we see here in Psalm 125 and in this definition of faith is that uh, the faith of believers, though it's compared to Mount Zion here, is not an end to it itself. It's not an end in and of itself. Scripture does not call us to embrace a bare faith, but instead to place our faith in Christ Jesus, receiving, as Maastricht said, God himself as the highest end. The great object of our faith is God himself. And Christ the Lord is the one and only mediator between man and God. By faith, all who believe in Christ are unshakably, indissolubly united to Christ. And through that mystical union, all who believe receive communion with Christ and all the benefits that come from that union and communion. What we're saying here is that the foundation of your faith in mine is not our own believing. It's not our own thoughts or feelings. But the foundation of our faith is the person and finished work of Jesus Christ, who has accomplished salvation for all who believe. And it's only because the object of our faith is our immovable rock and redeemer that the psalmist can say that those who trust in the Lord are immovable, like Mount Zion. This theme of God and Christ being our rock is all throughout Scripture, and the New Testament authors particularly talk about Christ being our foundation, being the rock of our salvation. And we see this, for example, in 1 Peter chapter 2. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, Peter is talking about Christ as our rock, as the living stone. And he says, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, he says, As you come to him, that is to Christ, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
for it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Christ, our Lord, is the rock. He is himself the foundation of your faith and of my faith. All who trust in Christ, then, are like Mount Zion, unshakable, because our faith is only in the rock and redeemer, Jesus Christ. The pilgrim traveling to Jerusalem from the outlying country looks up, And he sees God's holy city upon Mount Zion and is reminded that it is immovable like all those whose trust is only in the Lord. But then that pilgrim continues to look up. His eyes travel still up to the range of mountains which surround Mount Zion. And he's reminded of God's protective, eternal watch care over his covenant people. Those high mountains which tower over Jerusalem are a perennial reminder of God's preeminence because God is higher and greater than everything. And as the pilgrim's eyes are drawn up to these high mountains, they are lifted yet higher to the heavens. And their minds and hearts are drawn to contemplation of the maker of the mountains and of the skies and everything that is in this world. The maker, of course, is the Lord God himself who loves his people. And so the psalmist begins by looking to Mount Zion and then he continues to look ever higher and is reminded of the watch care, the love that God provides for his people. Just as the mountains surrounding Jerusalem protect that city from outside attackers, so too God protects his people from all his and our enemies. Verse 2 here is a vivid picture of God's loving and comforting care. God cares for his children. God comforts the brokenhearted. He strengthens the weary, sustains the weak, protects the vulnerable, lifts up the downcast. Dear Christian, this promise is for you. God loves you. God promises to protect you. He promises to surround you on every side. This promise in Psalm 2, this reminder that the Lord surround his people from this time forth and forevermore means that no matter what you are enduring, our great God will protect and comfort you. This should be a reminder for you and an encouragement for you to rest in this wondrous promise of God, to rest in the ever-loving arms of God of God, our Savior, who surrounds his people with his love. So in verses 1 and 2, we see that the Lord protects his people. In verse 3, we see what he protects them from. We see that wickedness remains. Verse 3 says, For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. God's people 
are protected. The Lord himself surrounds them. But that doesn't mean that they're promised an easy and carefree life. No, the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't promise that all who believe will be happy, healthy, and wealthy. Instead, in verse 3, you and I see that wickedness remains. Sin still remains within us, and sinners still seek to attack us. The scepter of wickedness is still around. It will not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, but it's still there. Part of what it means to grow in the Christian life is to grow in our knowledge of and understanding of how sinful you and I still are. Sin still clings closely to each and every one of us. And our God-ordained and Spirit-empowered task is to make it our daily business to kill our remaining sin, to put to death what is earthly in us, so that, what, so that we might be more and more like our rock, Jesus Christ. This task, what is called the mortification of sin, is a difficult one, but it is essential to the Christian life. Each one of us is plagued by indwelling sin, and we must kill it. We must overcome it. But we must also understand that this project of mortifying our flesh will not be completed in this life. We will never get to the point where we'll say, that was it. That was the final sin. I don't have to do this anymore. I can live the rest of my life without sin. No, while we remain here in this valley of tears, you and I will still sin, but we are not to be slaves to sin. As Pastor John has reiterated in his sermons on Romans chapter 6, sin remains in us, but it does not reign over us. If you are united to Christ, then Christ himself is king of your life. Sin no longer has dominion over you but it still will try to and sometimes succeed at derailing your spiritual life. And our three great enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, will seek to knock you off the path of righteousness and to cause you to stumble. So wickedness remains among the people of God, but the Lord is our great protector. And the Lord is also the one who provides us peace. As we see in verses 4 to five. They say again, do good, O Lord, to those who are good, to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. After talking about the wickedness around and within believers, in verses four and five, the Lord through the psalmist promises to give his people peace. These verses are a petition Verses 4 and 5 are a prayer to God, asking Him to do good to those who are good. As we've seen, you and I still sin. And so the only way that we can be reconciled to God, the only way that we can do good, as the psalmist says here, is through the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's through the cross of Christ. He has done it for us, and we now live in response to Christ's great work, in obedience to God's word. And any good we do is still tainted with sin. But we seek to serve the Lord in all that we say and all that we do. And we do good in the name of Christ our Savior. 
The message of the cross, of course, is that Christ Jesus is our Savior. That Christ Jesus did what you and I could not do. The Son of God came down and took on flesh to live a perfect life in obedience to God's law. Christ, our Savior, paid the penalty for your sin and for mine. Christ became sin for us, suffered the wrath of God for us, rose again from the dead in his hell-conquering and death-defeating resurrection. Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father and makes intercession for us, and Christ will come again in glory to make all things new, to take us home to be with him forever, to recreate this world, to recreate us, give us glorified bodies. And it's in this gospel alone, the gospel of Christ Jesus our Lord, that you and I can find true and lasting peace. It's only through Christ's atoning work that God declares his people righteous and pronounces a peace upon us. Even though sin remains, the psalmist recognizes that, that help comes from the Lord. And so he prays to God in verses 4 and 5. He sees wickedness all around him. He talks about the judgment that will come upon all of those who turn aside to do the crooked ways of the evildoers. He sees all of this happening, and yet he does not despair. He makes his petitions known to God. He cries out to God in prayer because he knows that God is his comforter and his refuge. And you and I would do well to learn from the psalmist's example here. Even in the midst of trouble, Christian, remember that God is protecting you, that God is surrounding you with his strong right arm, and that God longs to hear from you in prayer. And so when faced with trouble of every kind, make your petitions known to God who hears our prayers, who longs to hear from his beloved children, and who longs to comfort his people by his spirit. Psalm 125 begins with the word picture that those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. The reality of life in this world is that you and I will not always feel as though our faith is as immovable and unshakable as a mountain. Instead, assurance of our faith will wane from time to time. It will grow, but it will also decrease. But dear one, know that God promises to do good to those who love Christ and who are called according to his purpose. Christian, know that you are assured of God's love, that he surrounds you with his love and his strength, that he promises to protect you and comfort you, that he promises to give you peace. But know as well that that peace only comes through the blood of Christ poured out on the cross of Calvary. Joel Beakey, in his book, Knowing and Growing in Assurance of Faith, says that Romans chapter 8, that great chapter of Scripture that is dear to so many of us. But this chapter shows, quote, the anchor of Paul's assurance is knowing that God is for us. God sent his Son into the world to die for us. He says that Paul's understanding of God, 
who he is, what he has done for us and why, is the center of his assurance. It is God that justifies, and Christ who died and rose again for us, ascended into heaven and now makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Beaky goes on. Notice that Paul is not saying, I am persuaded of God's love because of something inside of me. Paul is persuaded that nothing can separate him from the love of Christ, not because he is so sure that he is a child of God, but rather the other way around. He is sure that he is a child of God because of what he knows about the love of Christ. The center of his thinking is not Paul or anything in himself. It is God. It is Paul's concept of God that gives rise to his assurance, end quote. Dear one, your faith and mine is assured not because of our own moral striving, our own law-keeping, our own believing. It's not assured by our own feelings or even our own thoughts about God or Christ or even our understanding of what Christ has done for us. Rather, assurance of faith comes from Christ alone from resting in the finished work of Christ on your behalf, from recognizing that Christ is the solid rock on which we stand. And we must stand firm on him alone. He is the rock of our salvation. It is only in Christ that we can say, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. Assurance of faith is not about your work, or anything that you or I could hope to do for God. Assurance comes from resting in the finished work of Christ alone. Dear one, believe in Christ. Place your faith in Jesus Christ and live your days in service to Christ, trusting in him. Let us pray. Our great God and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time we can dwell upon it. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would indeed give us faith in Christ, that we would place our faith in no one but Jesus Christ, that we would not look to ourselves or to politicians, to entertainers, to sports figures for our salvation, for our deliverance that we would look to Christ alone, that we would behold him, that we would trust in him, that he would be the solid rock of our salvation. We thank you, O oh Lord, for, the, for, for Jesus Christ, for the benefits of union and communion with Christ. We pray, O oh God, that we would rest in the finished work of Christ our Savior. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.